if there's any kind of magic in this world, it must be in the attempt of understanding someone sharing something. Foster and you are listening to the latest episode of Dined Out and it's a celebration bitches! This week we are celebrating the 50th birthday of modern American filmmaker auteur, I think that's fair enough to say, Paul Thomas Anderson. At the start of quarantine or lockdown or whatever you want to call it, I decided to go through the entire filmography of PTA, starting with Hard Eight, his debut feature uh, all the way to Phantom Thread, his last full-length film. And along the way, I got to see a couple of films I've never seen before. I got to see a couple of films I haven't seen for the longest time. And I also got to see a couple of films that I now view quite differently than I used to. So, having done that, having gone through his filmography from front to back, and with it being his birthday tomorrow on June 26th, I... I would put together my top five Paul Thomas Anderson films, and I've enlisted a little bit of help. So when I spoke to Dan a couple of weeks ago, I asked him for his top five PTA films, and that's where we're going to start. Going to go through Dan's top five, and then afterwards I'm going to go through mine. This is a really difficult question to answer because I think if you ask me the same thing tomorrow, the order would be different <laughs> right. and the films that appear would be different. Yeah. I feel like the only way you can really rank the quality of films by someone who is consistently great is just on like gut instinct in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I, you told me that we were doing this and I deliberately didn't write down a list. And I just wanted to kind of do it off the top oh, of my head. Okay. So cool. I think for me, number five right now would be Inherent Vice. Oh. Um, Okay. which is maybe a bit of an unusual choice. Yeah. I know it's probably seen as maybe a lesser Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. film, but I kind of just love the vibe of that movie. I think it's such a great sort of end of an era kind of movie mm-hmm. and that it just captures like the whole kind of kind of feel of the end of the 60s, the start of the 60s, uh, start of the 70s. Um, and it's it's kind of like walking into a haze, that movie, because there's, yeah. it's borderline incomprehensible yeah <laughs> um, it's very difficult difficult to sort of untangle the different narrative threads in that movie but i feel like there's something about its sense of humor and it's sort of like weird sort of stoned out kind of vibe with like kind of creeping sort of cynicism on the kind of on the sidelines that it's just so infectious and i kind of love about that movie mm-hmm that's a curveball um, for sure. I wasn't expecting that, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, so I guess number four would probably be Punch Drunk Love. Um, I mean, one of the things I always like about PTA is that he has this, like, I guess you watch his films and you think he'd be this super pretentious art film kind of dude. But mm-hmm. as soon as you hear any interview, he's actually just this 
very goofy guy <laughs> yeah. um who just loves like Ace Ventura 2 and Adam Sandler comedies. Um, and I think he just like kind of wanted to make an Adam Sandler comedy, but through his own sort of idiosyncratic aesthetic. And mm-hmm. and I love that about Punisher and Love, that um, it's very distinctly a PCA film um, and has such a kind of unusual kind of tone and debut comedy. But um, it is, but it isn't at the same time because it's hard to compare... There's definitely like his fingerprints are all over that film, but in comparison to other stuff in his his back catalogue, it's it's hard to kind of pull this up and be like, oh yeah, this is totally like this. It, it, to me, it feels very unique. Yet at the same time, it has very distinctive, as they say, fingerprints and and trademarks and and elements of PTA. Yeah, I feel like rather than making a PTA film, he's kind of like, I want to make like a Happy Madison production, but right. I'm going to make it the way I want to make it. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of this kind of hybrid of this sort of Sandler rom-com, but filtered through his unusual taste and sense of humour and sensibility. All right, what you got for number three? Um, number three would be Phantom Fred, um, okay. which I haven't seen since it came out in theatres, actually, but mm-hmm. I just remember kind of going and seeing it. I saw it on like 35mm film, at home in Manchester, which is one of my favourite cinemas in the whole world, and just kind of sitting there and watching that movie and being like, this is, I'm in the presence of just a great fucking movie right now. Like, in a way that I can't even, like, articulate or explain or define, like, there's just sort of inherent quality to this movie and to his filmmaking and storytelling that is just, like, a cut above what anyone else is doing right now Mm -hmm. or has done. Um... And just immediately fell in love with that movie. And I've all, like, I've almost feel like afraid to watch it because I just so love the experience of just seeing it at that time that like, I don't want to ever sort of tarnish that. I just found it so funny and compelling and and strange and beguiling. And yeah, I love that movie. Maybe that's the way to do it. Just never go back to it. Just always have it as that memory and just preserve it. Yeah, that's what I feel like. I might just preserve that memory of seeing it at that point of time in that place and never want to touch it again. Um, I feel I, a similar way about number two, which mm-hmm. is Magnolia. Um, oh, okay. That's so actually, level. it's kind of, I guess maybe even it's kind of the antithesis of it, really, because like Magnolia is a film that whenever I watch it, I sort of point out a lot of problems with it. And yeah. I realised that there are a lot of things that don't work and there are certain storylines I don't like or even performances that I don't like. Um, but then you know, enough time passes and I kind of forget about how the plot comes together. And I forget about certain strands of it and I'm just left with the sort of overall feeling of the movie. Um, and that's when I'm sort of kind of like, is Magnolia a masterpiece? Because <laughs> like, I sort of forget about the problems and I just remember individual moments like the raining frogs and the kind of the Amy Mann song that mm-hmm. sort of becomes an interlude in the middle. Um, and I just remember like Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance and and Tom Cruise's performance and like these are the things that stick around and, and in spite of all the other flaws I'm just kind of left with the, those impressions and they are really kind of profound and ambitious and pro- like provocative. Um, See that's a good yeah. way of putting it. I, I have a lot of problems with Magnolia. I rewatched it recently. I, I watched through his entire filmography this last month or two months and I found a lot of problems with Magnolia, but the one thing I will give him credit for is it is ambitious. He's trying stuff that I can't remember anybody else trying at that point. And not all of it works, but when it does, it does stick really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will go out on a limb and say uh, Magnolia is Tom Cruise's best performance, hands down. Yeah, I 
think it could be. I'm really partial to Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible films. Mm-hmm. I think he's really good in them. And I think mm-hmm. it's like the definition of who he is as a movie star is sort of crystallized yeah. in those movies. But then for sheer kind of performance, mm-hmm. I think it's got to be Magnolia, right? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's just, there's, a, there's an intensity and there's, an, there's a real brittleness to it, like a real sad fragility behind all of that sort of bravado, which I, yeah. I can't remember seeing him put that much into a performance. It's one of those of moments that sticks around is when he's just confronted with. Oh, yeah, in the interview the, section. The re, yeah, that scene is just, and you sort of see that facade just kind you of. You see the cracks just happening. Yeah, it just cracks ever so slowly and mm-hmm. just breaks down in front of you and it's an incredible moment it's those things that kind of stick around and i'll probably watch the film in a few months and be like oh yeah i forgot about the the game show bit and uh, there's the william h macy stuff that i'm not into but oh, see he's my favorite character really yeah, yeah. i never quite respond to that bit for some reason yeah he's he's just he's the character that i just out of everyone because most characters are just really unlikable in that film for the most uh-huh. part but him i don't know i just have like a real sense of empathy for it's just like I just I just want to buy him a beer and be like, be all right, Donny Donny Smith. He's still he's, quite good. <laughs> Donny Smith's quite good. He's so good at playing that kind of part, though. Yeah. Um, which I guess, um, yeah, it leaves a bit of an obvious one for number one, but I don't know. Like, I guess sometimes a filmmaker just makes a masterpiece, and you're kind of like, well, we've all got to agree that this is the best, right? And for me, that's a uh, there will be blood, yeah, which is sort of just like indisputably sort of like yeah this is this is a great filmmaker working at the very top level of, of what he can do mm-hmm. um, which is it's just great yeah. in every aspect not just him from a directional standpoint but just obviously the cast is fantastic uh the, the, that really manic score and mm-hmm. menacing parts of the score from johnny greenwood just as a film it just it, it works on, on all cylinders and obviously just such an inimitable performance by Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis, which is sort of like borders on parody and then just pulls it back like enough and then mm-hmm. kind of just gets ever so close to just kind of being ridiculous and then pulls back from that. Um, it's just never anything less than just so compelling to watch. It's weird. I saw a YouTube clip of him breaking character in a scene from that. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? I've never seen him do it before and it felt wrong. It felt like I wanted to go back in time and just not click on that link. So I was like, I think I've, I think I've ruined it a little bit. It's I'm so weird. It kind of ruins like, yeah, the like the art. And yeah. all it is, is it's just a smile. It's not like he just has an outburst. It's just like a little smile and he knows that he's he's gone off track a little bit. And it's just like, wow. Yeah, it's weird seeing a human being behind it. It's like watching like Da Vinci sneeze and just like <laughs> mistime a brush stroke and just. Like, wait, he's a human being. <laughs> right, exactly. So, what would be your top five? That is an excellent question, Dan, and I'm going to answer it right now. Ah, uh, stomping into the number five position with a groovy pair of sequined heels. It's Boogie Nights. I can't keep this up. It's Boogie Nights. Look, I know people love Magnolia. Hell, I mean, when I was at university, I, I did. It felt like a proper grown-up film for proper grown-ups, which, spoiler alert, I wasn't. Not to mention the soundtrack was, was amazing. It was constantly on rotation, never left my car glove box. But let's be honest, despite some high points in the film, and as discussed with Dan, a career best for Tom Cruise, it's really flawed. It's overly long, and, to be honest... It pales in comparison to the multi-character tapestry that is Boogie Nights. See, Boogie Nights, it just feels like it was made with love. Love for the characters, the setting, the time period. It takes hold of your attention early on and it keeps hold of it. 
It adapts certain influences and is more adventurous than Hard Eight. It shows directorial growth from Paul Thomas Anderson. It features great time period, aesthetics, camera work, tonal shifts, and performances. And yes, I'm talking to you, Mark Wahlberg. You shouldn't be ashamed of Boogie Nights. There are plenty of other films in your history that you should be deeply ashamed of. But Boogie Nights is definitely not one of them. <laughs> All right. Stacked on top of a table full of pudding at number four, it's Punch Drunk Love. I'll be honest, when I first watched Punch Drunk Love many, many, many moons ago, I really didn't care for it, not at all. But having watched it again, it's really grown on me. The complexity of Barry, Anderson's use of colour, his use of space and continuous movement, the relatability dressed in really unusual situations and John Bryan's chaotic, weird baroque pop stampede of a score there's honestly so much in punch drunk love that i initially didn't understand or appreciate on one hand you can look at this as the most underrated superhero origin story ever on the other you can see it as an oddly charming introverted romance and as a skewed look at personal growth it is by no means straightforward but it is incredibly charming and rewarding Okay, you ready? I think I am, I'm not sure. Percolating like homemade hooch or a keg full of lies, courtesy of Scientology, and number three, it's The Master. The Master is a lot of films, a lot of films, a lot of things within a single film. It's just the one film, but there's a lot going on in it. Um, The main crux of it, the core for what I really love about The Master is the fact it's fueled by two absolute knockout performances. Both of them are entwined in a relationship that's just really treacherous and twisty. Um, More more treacherous and twisty than an auditing session. Uh, The Master is, quite frankly, borderline masterpiece. The archetype of the wayward son and the dubious patriarch, it's its a complex power struggle that is, yeah, it's kind of light on narrative, but it's rife with character and interpersonal politics. Plus, it's got a really rich colour palette of dark blues, greys, greens, it's got a killer use of focus, and, let's be honest, some top-notch cinematography all around. It's gorgeous looking, and understandably, like a number of PTA films, it's not for everyone, but for me... It's one of his most finest accomplishments to date. By the way, you're not hearing things. That was the sound of someone with what seemed like a chainsaw. I'm not entirely sure. Probably like a grass cutter, but it could be a chainsaw. Who knows? What anyone is doing wielding heavy tools in this heat, I I don't know. But hopefully that's the end of it. Hopefully Leatherface has uh, gone inside for some lunch. For the hungry boys looking to fill their tum-tums with cinematic sustenance. It's Phantom Fred. Okay, so I won't lie. The top two, it is a photo finish. It is really that close. If you were to ask me tomorrow, there is a really good chance that I would actually nudge Phantom Fred up to the top spot. But now, for this, I think yeah, it, it's number two. But it is a really, really close number two. There's a lot of reasons why I love Phantom Fred. I mean, for starters, it orbits around a central relationship that, quite honestly, makes Freddie Quell and Lancaster Dodd look relatively normal. Dare I say functional. It's an utterly believable relationship that's delivered with just a great sense of nuance and sort of unspoken truth from both Daniel Day-Lewis and Vicky Creeps. Both of their performances, from top to bottom, are fantastic, but especially 
the non-verbal performances, the, the sort of silent looks, the gestures, the, the, the responsive mannerisms. And just watching them work together, it's like trying to figure out a puzzle. It's a relationship that just, it unfolds like a sort of melancholic ghost story. It's like an ethereal fable and it ranges from like mysterious to macabre with this real slow burn approach, just filled, as I say, with moments of like haunting silence, haunting silence that genuinely really leave an impression on you. In fact, the whole thing is like a ghost story. It's like a twisted gothic romance, like a Grimm's fairy tale that has been poured into the perfect time and setting, all of which is just amazingly amplified by just how gorgeous the film looks. Everything in the film is just something to behold, from the costume design to the colour palette to the, just the, the overall aesthetic that's been captured on 35mm Kodak. It's, it's just incredible. Kind of like the film itself, really. Alright, number one. Are you ready? Because to be honest, I don't think I am. But here we go. I'll be there for you when the black rain starts to fall. Doesn't even fit the melody. Um, That was, that was horrendous. Yeah, sorry about that. It's uh, it's There Will Be Blood. That, that's the film. It's my favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film. Yeah, it was just... It was just dismal. Sorry. There Will Be Blood is rightfully considered by many to be a masterpiece. With its arresting compositions and stunning cinematography, it's a film that presents a tortured vision of the American dream. Technically... Visually and thematically, There Will Be Blood is exactly what many hail it to be, and that is a masterpiece. It's a sweeping tale of rivalry, ruthless determination, and the price of a man's soul, all of which is punctuated by a calculated, sinister, and, let's be honest, guys, at times downright pant-wettingly terrifying performance from Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, if the man wants to drink your milkshake, if he is that adamant to drink your milkshake up, then heed some advice leave it on the table, and leave the room. Paul Dano is no slouch in this either. For those of you who maybe are not too familiar with Paul Dano's work, one, you should rectify that, because the man's a pretty great actor to begin with, but jeez, he knocks it out of the park in this film and is a great sort of reflection of Daniel Plainview. I don't want to say foil, because he's far more than that. I don't want to quite say mirrored reflection, because I don't know if that's exactly what his character is supposed to be. Again, like Phantom Fred, there is a real sense of mystery between the characters and within the characters. Although you see very sort of repugnant and awful sides to them and you see like a sort of rotten core in each of them, there is also a sense of mystery to them too. The genuinely menacing tone of There Will Be Blood, it just gets under your skin right from the beginning of its prolonged silent intro. Which, by the way, I know some people really dislike, but it's amazing and they're wrong. Anyway, it gets under your skin from that silent intro, and it only digs deeper as the film progresses. Add to this the, the weird, jagged, again terrifying off-kilter score from Johnny Greenwood, which just really digs in and amplifies the atmosphere of the film. The use of lighting and framing throughout, especially to emphasise both environment and non-verbal communication from the characters. And you have, in my humble opinion, Paul Thomas Anderson's best film, and his benchmark film. This, for me, is the bar which he has set himself. Will he be able to top it? I don't know. But I do look forward to seeing his future attempts. 
So there you go, those are my top five Paul Thomas Anderson films. A quick recap for you in case you want it. Boogie Nights, Punch Drunk Love, The Master, Phantom Fred, There Will Be Blood. Those are my top five. We also heard Dan's top five. But maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, but what about... How could you miss? Are you crazy? Why didn't you include... This is where you guys come in. Because as much as I like talking about PTA and my top five Paul Thomas Anderson films, I want to know what your top five are. Maybe there was some terrible omissions there. Maybe the order was all wrong. I don't know. I want to know what your top five PTA films are. And why do you put them in that order based on the actual cinematic craftsmanship? Or is it just a case of the top five that you enjoy the most? Also, if you want to hear more top five lists in the future, whether that be for specific directors or perhaps genres or even of a certain year, whatever it is, let me know. I don't want to flood this podcast with top fives. I don't want to flood the website with top fives. But if you guys want more of them, I am more than happy to open up my ears to what you guys are suggesting and what you want to hear. So yeah, if you've got another idea for a top five in the future, whether it be a director, whether it be a genre, whether it be a year, whatever, let me know what it is. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can get in touch with me directly on Twitter. You can find me at I am Mal Foster. You can leave your PTA top fives and your suggestion for future top fives over at Facebook to find the Facebook group for Dimed Out. Or you can go straight to our brand new website, which is dimed-out.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and leave your comments leave your top five pta films in the comments and leave your suggestions for future top fives in there as well so plenty of options and on that note that pretty much wraps this episode up yes i know it's a little bit short but it's a little bit niche as well hopefully it's been a little bit fun and you've got to hear some stuff about your favorite films whether they are just favorite films in general or favorite pta films or maybe You are familiar with one or two Paul Thomas Anderson films, but have never really ventured too far out into his filmography. Maybe this is going to sort of push you into checking out some of his other stuff. Hopefully that is the case. But yeah, that's it for this week. Next week we are moving firmly away from film, because I know not everybody wants to just hear a podcast dedicated to film. There are podcasts that do exactly that. And we do want to sort of expand our scope and spectrum. So next week, we're going to be diving into something completely different. What that is? Ah, well, you are just going to have to wait and see. But it's going to be good, I promise you. In the meantime, if you haven't, do go check out the website, dimed-out.com. That's a little dash. I'm sure everyone knows what a hyphen is. But anyway, dimed-out.com. You can find all the episodes in there. You can find some other stuff in there. Plenty of stuff to go exploring. And also, yeah, get in touch with me on Twitter at IamMalFoster. Join the Facebook group. Get involved. Get in touch. Let me know what kind of things you guys want to hear. Because I have ideas. I have stuff planned. But I am all ears to the kind of things that you guys want to hear as well. So, yeah, get in touch. Say hi. Let me know what you want to see from the show in the future. And, uh, yeah, just swing by. Whatever platform, all are welcome. All are welcome. But remember, I don't even, yeah... But remember, if you are going to swing by, if you're going to get in touch with the show, then just remember the golden rule. And that is, be like Fonzie. Be cool, honey bunny. Be cool. And what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold. And what's being more ice cold than just randomly inserted pop culture references? I'll tell you what is. That's leaving us a rating and a review. If you've enjoyed the show so far, and hopefully you have, hopefully you have indeed, enjoyed the show. If that's the case, 
then you can do me a solid, you can do me a big old favor. You can subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcast from, but you can also leave us a rating and a review. I just realized I sounded like I was channeling my inner review bra right there. Of running on empty food review. My disappointment is immeasurable. And my day is ruined. In all seriousness, if you have enjoyed the show, do feel free <laughs> to go and give us a rating and a review. I say us, it's me. It's just me. It's me. There is no us. Well, there is. There's me and you. All of us, collectively. Because that's what you're doing. You're helping yourself out as well. By helping the show out, if you enjoy it, you're helping yourself out. Because then we, we do better. There's more resources to do stuff. And we can expand and do, do other things too. So yeah, there isn't us. We're in this together. You and me, buddy. We got this. Yeah, so go do that, and you'll get a big old virtual hug in your ear. I guess. That doesn't even make any sense. Um, never mind. This is the end of the episode. I've been trying to get here for the last couple of minutes, but again, I'm self-sabotaging. Whatever you die... What? I don't even know what that... Words are just failing me now. Yeah, whatever. I'm just gonna actually leave that in. Why not? Just for the lols, as the kids say. Or probably don't say anymore. Who knows? So out of touch. Anyway, look after yourself, guys. Look after those around you. And until next time, keep it timed out. Oil be there for you when the black rain starts to pour. Oil be there for you but when you're drilling off the shore. Oil be there for you, Daniel Plainview. I'll be there for you, I will. This just sounds so bad. This song's also terrible. Can't believe I bought this on CD single.